Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the 74th episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. This is Jim Stedman. I'm senior editor of Cotton Grower. And as always, I'm joined by Cotton Grower editor Frank Giles from his home office in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Uh, and we have more than a few things to catch up on as sort of the actions and reactions to the dicamba ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals just keep on keeping on. Frank, I've, I've seen a lot of stories that keep stretching themselves out, but this one truly is uh, the gift that keeps on giving uh, if you like courtroom maneuverings. It's like a Matlock episode that won't ever end. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, the rulings, and we'll get into more detail on this a little bit later, but it seems like maybe the, the Ninth Circuit's ruling late Friday maybe put a close to at least chapter one of this story, and now we're going to pivot to getting those new labels and uh, looking toward next season and the implications that all this has for weed control next year. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think, and we'll talk about this in more detail in just, just a couple of minutes, but I think we are kind of hit a, a point right now where, you know, the, the application windows for dicamba in, in many of our states are have closed or are going to be closing very, very quickly. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, uh, we're, we're dealing with the organizations and groups that, uh, you know, are, are out to protect their own interests and, uh, and, and doing what they feel like they need to do. And, and they certainly do not go away uh, for things like this. So we'll, uh, we'll see what happens next. Maybe we'll, get, maybe we'll get a week or so to, you know, to breathe on this one for now. But as you can tell, obviously, Dicamba is going to consume a good part of today's episode again. But before we really get started, Let's start things off with a short message from our sponsor, Phytogen. Phytogen is pleased to sponsor the Cotton Companion, bringing you the latest news to help you thrive all season long. All right, a big thanks to the folks at Phytogen for sponsoring the Cotton Companion podcast. And before Frank and I move into our topics for the day and the, uh, and the latest cotton news, as always, we're going to turn things over to our colleague, Robin Sickberg for a custom content interview with Dr. Ken Leger, who is Phytogen's Cotton Development Specialist in West Texas and Oklahoma. Hello, I'm Robin Zipper, Custom Content Editor for Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. My guest on the program today is Dr. Ken Leger, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist in West Texas and Oklahoma. So welcome back to the program, Ken. Thank you. I know last time we talked about the planting season being over and moving into June and July and what growers should consider. I want to ask you what you're excited about this season. I tell you with phytogen, one of the most exciting things is our portfolio of phytogen breeding traits, which are naturally occurring native traits in cotton. They're really protect yield and protect quality uh, against some common pests like bacterial blight. Uh, we've had bacterial blight in every one of our enlist containing varieties, our W3FE lineup. Uh, for years, so uh, I really have to go to a competitor to train my eye to see bacterial blight, and so I remember what it looks like because uh, I simply don't see it in our in our lineup. Uh, then, really, where we're getting a lot of traction is root knot nematode resistance. A lot of growers simply don't realize that we have the industry leading two gene root knot nematode resistance package in many of our varieties, and growers are starting to to notice that and seeing the advantage. Uh, not only achieving good yields on those fields that are infested, but also reducing that pest population. Then, of course, we've been uh, working on verticillium wilt tolerance, and we have some excellent verticillium wilt varieties 
several that, that are adapted for uh, north of Lubbock, particularly where we have really high verticillium wilt uh, conditions, and we're seeing very good results with those. Uh, so really, a lot of those phytogen breeding traits creates a lot of excitement out in the field. Well, that's excellent news. I'm sure growers are excited about that. And is there anything new coming down the pike? Yeah, our newest phytogen breeding trait is our reniform resistant trait. And we're, we're going to be first to the market with it in 2021. Uh, I'm fortunate to live in a part of the world where not only do I see it in our trials with our phytogen horizon network growers, but I also see it in our seed production blocks in this particular area. So I'm, I'm fortunate to see it on a large scale basis and already even uh, at this point in the season, I'm already seeing some differences and getting great feedback from growers uh, in some cases where they couldn't even grow cotton anymore. Uh, they're seeing success with growing uh, some seed block with our reniform resistant trait in those varieties. That's going to make some growers very happy who have to deal with rat farm nematodes. You bet. All right. Well, our time always goes quickly. Uh, so I've got to thank you for being on the program and wrap up by saying that growers can always go to phytogen.com for more information. And thanks again for being on the program. Thank you. Well, thank you, Robin. And thank you, Ken, for that interview. Uh, always good to hear from you. Uh, Ken's a good friend of ours, and, uh, and we've been working with him in West Texas for, for a number of years. Frank, it's been, uh, can you believe it's only been three weeks since the, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals released its initial ruling vacating the registration for uh, Extendamax, Fexapan, and Ingenia dicamba herbicides? Uh, I, it feels like it's been a crazy three weeks trying to cover and make sense of it all. Feels like it's been forever. Yeah, is that and something daily? You know, as soon as you post something on the website, uh, that news almost gets dated immediately because there'd be some new update coming coming uh, shortly thereafter. So it's been a been a wild three weeks. We have we have updated articles three to four times a day, in some cases. So it's uh, you know from from a from a journalistic perspective, it's uh, it's it's been a uh, almost a case study in uh, in covering covering hot news for agriculture. But let's take a look at what's happened to date. We have seen EPA subsequently issue its cancellation order. I think we talked about that in our last podcast, uh, outlining specific circumstances under which existing stocks of the three dicamba products that were in hand by, in, in growers' hands by uh, June 3rd could be used according to the former federal label and or state regulations through a period that ends July 31st. Uh, I believe that's where we kind of ended our discussions last time. On June 11th, uh, the farming and conservation groups behind this initial legal action went back to the Ninth Circuit Court and asked the judges to find EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler in contempt for refusing to abide by the court's order suspending use of dicamba. The court, of course, then gave EPA an opportunity to state its reasons behind its, uh, its order, uh, which it did. Uh, a day later on June 12th, BASF and Corteva both filed emergency motions to intervene in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals June 3rd ruling uh, to vacate the registrations for the products, seeking an opportunity to demonstrate the ruling's significant negative impact on U.S. agriculture and its customers. June, fast forward to June 16th. A coalition of six national grower trade associations, including the National Cotton Council, filed an amicus brief supporting EPA's position 
and urged the court to reject the contempt filing and immediately reinstate dicamba. Uh, the group calculated expected yield losses for cotton and soybeans uh, without dicamba to be as high as 50%, with monetary losses estimated for this year at as much as $800 million for cotton and $10 billion for soybeans. So then last Friday, June 19th, the judges on the Ninth Circuit Court denied the emergency motion from the plaintiffs uh, to immediately end dicamba use and to hold EPA in contempt. The court also ruled on the emergency motions filed by BASF and Corteva to intervene in the original ruling, allowing both companies now to join Bayer uh, in the case and, and stating their defense. So as of now, like we've said, this is, uh, this is a key victory for EPA uh, and its cancellation order. And with those application windows already closing, uh, it appears obviously the next bone of contention is going to come with the re-registration process for dicamba, which was already on EPA's schedule for later this year. But uh, lest we think this is all over, uh, we also need to keep in mind that through in the course of these last three weeks, uh, we've discovered and found out that these same farming and conservation groups have a similar lawsuit that was filed in 2017 with the same court, the Ninth Circuit Court, against Corteva's Enlist Duo herbicide and, uh, and that whole technology. Uh, you almost have to stop and catch your breath, Frank, when you, uh, you know, when you sit back and look at everything that's, that's happened in a short period of time. Yeah, I'm impressed you got through with all that without having to take a sip of water or catch your breath. <laughs> I was getting choked up at the whole, you know, <laughs> at the thought of the whole process on yeah. this, but uh, yeah, it's uh, there, there are days when it's felt like we've been drinking from a fire hose uh, on it. And uh, it's, it is, you know, we've, we've spent some, some late nights on, on Friday nights and over the weekends trying to update uh, some of this stuff since some of the rulings don't come down uh, during a, a normal business day at this point. But uh, I think it's say after, all this legal maneuvering has, has obviously caused a lot of questions and headaches and, and it sucked up an amazing amount of energy in, in the cotton industry over a, a short period of time. Um, as this has continued to play out, we want to recognize obviously that the vast majority of growers have done a great job this year with their dicamba applications. Your, your state specialists have told us so. Uh, you've been through the training, you followed the regulations, you have followed the label and, uh, and for, you know, again, high percentage of, of applications have gone on with, with very few problems. But yet, since these, these rulings have come down, uh, we've seen reports of dicamba theft from farm sheds while growers were in the field spraying. We've heard rumors of more off-label application of generic dicamba products, uh, pro essentially from folks possibly who were not able to get the uh, the correct dicamba formulations and to that we just we just want to say stop uh, if we want to be able to keep this technology in the weed control toolbox uh, next year and beyond uh, everyone's got to kind of settle down uh, take advantage of the opportunity that EPA is giving us need to follow that uh, former federal label and or your state guidelines and let's get this spraying season wrapped up without incident Sorry, some editorial thoughts. Uh, you know, just just felt like some things that needed to be said. Frank, any any comments on your your side? 
not really. I just uh, echo what you say there. I mean, this is, you know, this whole episode is pointed out and emphasized how important this technology is. So stewardship of it and proper use of it uh, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. And when you, and when you look at the investment that the, uh, the, the companies have put in place for this technology, and, and, and obviously their breeding programs are working on varieties, not just for next year, but for you know, years down the line, four or five years ahead of time, maybe even farther. And this technology is a big part of the breeding programs uh, you know, for, for all of the seed companies at this point. So it's, it's a technology that has, has been proven. It's a technology that, that continue to be shepherded properly. Uh, and, and, and everything, the industry, I'm sure, is going to be lining up to do whatever ever it needs to do to help uh, EPA in this re-registration process and help uh, continue to defend the technology. Absolutely. All right, let's, let's, move, let's move on. I, I'm, I'm tired of talking about dicamba for today. Dicamba out. I'm dicamba out. Yes. Very good. Very good. Well, let's look at prop, crop progress. Um, the week ending of June 21st is planting is pretty much done with about 90 96% of the acres uh, reported planted. That's up about 7% from last week. We've got squaring going in fields, about 27% of the crop is squaring now. That's up 11% from last week and slightly ahead of the five year average. Uh, bowls are starting to show up in fields. About 6% of the crop is now setting bowls. That's led by Arizona and parts of Southern Texas. Crop conditions, uh, still they're slipping a little bit. We've got 25% uh, uh, rated poor to very poor, 40% good to excellent, and 35% rated fair. One thing I wanna, I wanna comment on right here is, sure. we talk about 96% of the crop being planted. We don't know exactly what that acreage is going, what that total acreage is looking like at this point, but we suspect it's going to be smaller than what was originally estimated by USDA. Uh, we are, let's see, as, as we record this, we are a week away from, from the official plantings report from USDA. So next time, next podcast, we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit more that will give us an idea of what the actual acreage is for this year. And under crop conditions, the thing to watch on this is, you know, we, we've been watching the, the crop rating slip into the poor, very poor range, but you know, 25% is a big hit on a national level. But when you get down to a state level, uh, you're looking at uh, uh, 26% uh, in South Carolina, at 30% in, uh, in Missouri, and 40% of the crop rated poor to very poor in Texas right now. And I'm sure wow. a big part of that is, uh, is those dryland areas up in West Texas that, uh, that have been suffering. Uh, I understand they did get some rain in that area. So hopefully we'll watch, watch these numbers and hopefully in the next week uh, we'll see start to trend back up a little bit toward the, toward the fair to good, good range. Anyway, Go ahead. I'll let you let you continue. No worries. No worries. Yeah, it's amazing what a what a one good rain can do in West Texas. Oh, no kidding. And so, anyway, we we'll hope that, hope those conditions turn around. We also have some reports from Alabama Extension that they have confirmed cotton leaf roll dwarf virus. Uh, people also call it cotton blue disease. It was found in some sentinel plots there on June eighth, the week of June eighth. Um, that's about a month earlier than last year, 
and a concern because the earlier it shows up, usually the greater associated yield loss. So it's got a month head start on us this year. According to extension plant pathologist Austin Hagen, the first cotton seedling samples taken from the plots showed leaf puckering and blistering. Lab tests confirmed that about 30% of the samples taken uh, were positive. So it's probably safe to say that cotton blue disease is present at, present at some level in most fields in Alabama. And finally, we're gonna do some congratulations. Uh, congratulations to Stacy Smith, a cotton grower from New Home, Texas and Dr. Jeffrey Gore, a research professor at Mississippi State De Delta Research and Education Center in Stoneville, for their appointments to the EPA's Farm, Ranch, and Rural Communities Committee. That, that was a mouthful. And so they've been appointed to that task. Also want to congratulations to Mark Stewart, who has been named the new president of Drexel Chemical Company here in Memphis. And congrats to England Farms down in South Texas. Mike and Elizabeth England of Mercedes, Texas, brought us the first cotton bales of 2020 on June 18th. And those uh, bales were uh, ginned at Ross Gin there. It never surprises me the dates that, uh, that these, the first bale always seems to come in. But it's always, always like seems to be early to mid-June and of course, that's cotton that was planted in, in an area where they can get into the fields back in February and early March. So, uh, you know, congratulations to those, uh, to that farm and, and to, to the, all the other folks at this point. Uh, thanks. I appreciate all the, the roundup on that, Frank. Uh, now we're going to move ahead with our market segment. And, and today, uh, believe it or not, we're not going to talk about Dicamba. We're not going to talk about the markets, uh, which may be a relief for our listeners. Uh, we're going to turn our focus more to the field level, and uh, we are today. We're we visited with Dr. Bob Kimmerite. He's extension plant pathologist with the University of Georgia, and we talked with uh, talked with Bob about several topics, including this year's crop, about nematode management, and some of the new breeding traits that are coming from seed companies to help manage both root knot and reniform nematodes. And also about some of the other diseases in, in cotton that growers uh, need to be starting to take, uh, at least pay some attention to and, and, and keep watching for. So let's go to that interview segment right now. In this episode's market segment, we're taking a break from Dicamba news and market prices and instead turning our discussion to what's happening at the field level uh, with a particular focus on the Southeast today. Uh, we're joined today by Dr. Bob Kimmerite. He's extension plant pathologist with the University of Georgia. Bob, welcome to the Cotton Companion. I appreciate you all including me today. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. First of all, have you been with all of the, through all these pandemic restrictions? What type of adjustments have, have you and your colleagues had to make sort of in your in your day-to-day -day work? Well, that's really been a challenge for us. Uh, I can uh, kudos to the University of Georgia for making sure that the students are safe, the faculty safe, staff is safe and so it's been it's been restricted but we're grateful for their attention but it's been a little bit challenging to be able to get our tests out and mm -hmm. to get our student workers and everybody in place and do things but uh, but the university has recognized just how important it is this research how important it is the growers and they've allowed us to find appropriate ways to continue our work on a, an appropriate level and so we are maybe not where we would have been without it 
Uh, but gratefully, we've been through cooperation with a lot of parties and a lot of understanding. We've been able to do mm-hmm. our job and to do it safely and uh, with with uh, appreciation for the impact and seriousness of this uh, difficult time. Yeah, I've, t- I've talked to researchers in other parts of the country, and they basically have said, we, you know, we're going to probably have to scale some of the studies back that we wanted to do this year. May have to postpone a couple, you know, till to next year. But I think everybody seems to have, have adjusted to find a nice medium in there where they can they can get things done and, and try to get some of the studies squared away that they were looking for. Yeah, that's that's been our experience too. And we might be a little bit behind in planting, but when you're working with diseases and nematodes, you know, they're unfortunately they're always there for growers. And so if we're a little bit late planting, we're still going to be able to get the information we hope will will make a difference for growers this year and next year and into the future. That's great. Now, th- obviously it's been a crazy year for, for a number of reasons. Uh, and I, I, kind of follow what's going on in different parts of the country. And I understand Georgia sort of had a start, stop, start again planting season uh, this year with either either too little or too much moisture, depending on, on the week. Uh, you have been out and about. How's, how's the crop looking from an overall standpoint from your perspective? Well, you hit it on the head. You know, we've got some cotton that was planted into in the end of March. You know, that's this mm-hmm. well along. We've got some that when it got dry or when we had too much water, we got some that's it's barely up now. So our crop is spread out all over the board. But I'll say this, our cotton crop in Georgia, knock on wood, and the growers probably wouldn't want me to say anything. But right now, right now, it's looking really good. And uh, good. I, you know, our peanut crop is taking it on the chin for a lot of reasons. But our cotton crop, knock on wood, I'm really proud of what it's looking like. And we just need the moisture and we need the heat units and we need to just move it along. But it's spread over the board as far as planting dates. But boy, it looks good right now. That's good to hear. Now, <clears throat> you not you and I have talked over the last several years. I you know Georgia's always been a hot spot in terms of nematodes uh, and the need to manage those properly. How's uh, what have growers done so far this year to manage nematode damage? And uh, you know, just are, I'm I'm guessing the hot spots are still the hot spots in the state. Correct. Glad you give me this opportunity to talk today because if we look back at the winter of 2019, 2020, it really was not much of a winter in the Southeast and certainly not in Georgia. And we've had, uh, Jim, we've had plants and that were not destroyed. We've had plants that have survived the winter all the way into the next planting season. And it becomes a buffet for nematodes. So this warm winter we've had, the moisture we've had, plants in the field you know we've predicted that not only this but also this new virus might be surviving on these this regrowth certainly the nematodes have been feeding out there so it has been a big year for nematodes our growers recognize this root knot nematodes are biggest crop running forms out there as well I'm really excited that our growers take this seriously. They take the uh, warnings about the weather seriously, and they have been fighting nematodes. They've been adopting, uh, whether they're using telone, whether they're using vellum total, whether they're using aglogic or some of our seed treatments, but also in the mix now is these new root knot nematode resistant varieties. And now some of the companies are coupling reniform resistance on them. That's really exciting. You know, if I told a grower that they could plant for about $3 an acre, root knot nematode resistant variety, uh, why wouldn't they do it? You know, it's a great value. And what they're looking at now is they're excited that not only do they have the resistance, but we're bringing yield out, bringing yield along with these traits, a lot of excitement, and especially when you can get root knot and reniform. So it's a, it's a tremendous tool and a great addition to, to my world. I know, I, I know we've, I've talked to a lot of, to the, uh, to some of the seed companies about some of these traits, uh, both from root knot and, and nematode perspective, uh, these new breeding traits that they're putting in place. Uh, 
and I know you've worked with them in your research plots over the last couple of years. Uh, what's your perspective on on these? Are, are is this kind of the wave of the future for for your for your growers or for growers everywhere that have uh, have nematode issues? Well, I tell the growers I promise them two things: if they plant one of these root knot nematode resistant varieties, probably the reniform as well. I promise them uh, that they're not going to need. Or actually, three things: they're not going to need a nematocyte. Uh, they're not going to have the damage that they would with a susceptible crop, and they're not going to build the nematodes up for next year. When you plant these varieties this year, these resistant varieties, it's almost like planting peanuts in a cotton field. The nematodes, the root knot nematodes, and hopefully now the reniform don't build up. The problem is the growers, if there's any growers listening, they're all going to say, but what about the Y word? What about yield? What about yield? Am I better off to use resistance or to use a high-yielding susceptible variety of protective nematocyte? Fair question. The exciting thing, Jim, with these uh, these new varieties that are coming out is it, more and more it appears to me you don't have to compromise yield expectation and have these traits as well. So your question is, do I see as the wave of the future? I see we're getting closer and closer to being able to ride that wave. We may not be able to ride it quite yet, but I can tell you what, with what we got in 2020 from some of these companies, I think we're going to be up there. And I think growers are going to be very, very satisfied with what they're seeing. That's, that's great to hear. Now, you mentioned a minute ago uh, about some of the, uh, some of the diseases. You mentioned, uh, you know, the, the regrowth possibly being, you know, uh, susceptible to, to some of these diseases. And it's usually, we're, we're sort of moving into the time of the season when growers need to be looking for disease symptoms. Uh, noted last week that Alabama has uh, said they already had their first outbreak of cotton leaf roll dwarf virus. Uh, how are conditions setting up for, for that and, and maybe for other diseases in Georgia at this point? What do growers need to be looking for? Uh, that's a great question. And, and what I would tell them right now is the conditions, yes, they found it in Alabama. We're continuing to look. We really don't know what the impact of the cotton leaf roll dwarf virus is going to be. But hats off to our co colleagues in different locations and certainly at Auburn University uh, for helping us to understand and we continue to look as well. So we're watching for it. As far as the cotton leaf roll dwarf virus, what I'm telling growers and my agents and the consultants is to recognize what the symptoms are or what the symptoms could be recognize when it appears in your crop. There's nothing we can do about it now, but recognize when it might come so we can understand what impact it will or it won't have. And so that's something we're, we're concerned with. And my sentinel plots for this, I'm seeing a lot of aphids out there. We know the virus is spread by aphids. So the crop is there, the aphids are there. Now it's just to see what will happen with the disease. Another one that we're watching out there is the bacterial blight. You know, bacterial blight's been overshadowed by the cotton leaf roll dwarf virus. But just like this virus can survive in regrowth cotton, just like the nematodes can feed, this bacterial blight can be a problem in regrowth and then it can be a problem in the crop as well. And we have had absolutely perfect conditions blowing storms, rain, um, and we're starting to see a little bit of bacterial blight pop up as well. And again, nothing the growers can do about the virus, nothing they can do about the blight, except for be aware in their field what's there and recognize, do they need to make some sort of change for 2021? Hopefully it won't be a major problem, but growers need to be aware of what it looks like and what's in the field. What about target spot? I know that was an issue with you a couple of years ago, and, and now it seems to have spread all the way over into the Mid-South and, and other areas. Is that still still something you're, you're monitoring as well? Yeah, target spot caused by a fungus is a a constant companion. Now we've got something called areolic mildew, two foliar diseases that 20 years ago I would have never either never heard of or never cared about. But now target spot and areolic mildew, at least in the southeast and certainly in Georgia, we know that they have the potential in years like we have right now, high humidity, uh, frequent rain, 
or rain at times and certainly rain earlier, it has the prop potential to be a problem. And so our recommendations for growers is, is as they approach bloom, put your finger on the trigger. Don't necessarily pull the trigger, but put your finger on the trigger because protecting your crop against target spot and against areolate mildew with a good fungicide program, maybe a single application, maybe two applications, when these diseases are problematic, makes the difference in your yield, makes you money. No doubt about that from our research, but it doesn't always come into play, doesn't always. So you have to watch. It's a, put your finger on the trigger first bloom, Look and see, is target spot or aerial mildew a potential problem? Between the first week of bloom through about the sixth week of bloom, keep your finger there and decide, do I need to pull it or do I need to hold off until conditions become more favorable? The biggest mistake our growers in Georgia could make is to think it doesn't matter to me. Well, it ought to matter to you whether you pull the trigger or not comes up with a lot of different factors. Absolutely. Well, I'm going, I'm going to shut us off at this point. Uh, it has been great. I love having you on, on, on the program. We've We've really been overdue getting to you on this, so I appreciate your time, and it's good to hear that things are, are moving well and, and the crop's looking good in Georgia, uh, and that, uh, that some of the new technologies seem to be working. Uh, I certainly appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to join us today. Uh, we appreciate it and, and look forward to visiting with you again soon. I appreciate it. Thanks for this opportunity. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that segment as much as, uh, as, much as I did. And, and many thanks again to Bob Kimmerite for his, for his expertise and his time during this busy season. He was very gracious to, uh, to take some time to join us early one morning. That pretty much takes care of this episode of Cotton Companion. Thanks again to Dr. Kimmerite for joining us. And always, we want to thank the folks at Phytogen for sponsoring us. And thank you to our listeners out there for joining us again. And let your friends uh, know about us. If they are not aware, we'd love them to join the podcast as well. Uh, they can get to us uh, three easy ways. Uh, first, you can go to cottongrower.com and add a front forward slash in the word companion. So it reads cottongrower.com forward slash companion. You can uh, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts these days or sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-news. Uh, that hits your uh, mailbox every Tuesday morning. You can uh, subscribe there by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. And always be sure to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter at, at Cotton Grower Mag, and you can find us on Facebook by searching Cotton Grower Magazine. Our latest issue, the May-June issue, is at the printer and should be in your hands very soon. All right. This podcast is produced by Tyler Hatch, our colleague at Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name's Jim Stedman. I'll be back with you here again in a few weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. And for now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Frank Giles, we wish you all the best. Stay safe. And as my kids keep telling me, be nice. Phytogen thanks you for listening to this edition of The Cotton Companion. To learn how you can thrive with Phytogen, go to phytogen.com.